Let's just pray before we start. Father, teach us what we need to know from your word. Lord, send your Holy Spirit. Lord, that he might enlighten us. Lord, we need the knowledge, but Lord, we need the experience of your truth. Father, we pray that tonight you'll just set us free. Lord, that the truth that we receive now will make a difference to us. Oh, Father, I pray for such a blessing on people tonight. Oh, Lord, that there really will be, oh, Lord, such rejoicing in your truth. Oh, Father, anoint me now as I speak, and Lord, anoint the others as they hear. And Jesus, we just pray that you'll come and that you'll move amongst us now as we turn to your word. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <coughs> right, okay, we're still continuing uh, this series on, on the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, tonight will be sort of like the last talk directly on the gifts of the Spirit, and then we have to move on to one or two other things uh, before what we have taught about the whole subject is complete. And what I want to do is, because uh, there are some loose ends here, you see, and we've got to tie all the loose ends up. And so there are two questions that I want to ask and then answer tonight. And the first question, and uh, you'll see how relevant it is, is quite simply this. Where are all the miracles that we used to see? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, sort of what sort of someone sang a few years ago, where have all the flowers gone? I mean, today it's where have all the gifts of the Spirit gone, hasn't it? There has been undeniably a decline in the use of the gifts of the Spirit amongst Christians over the last few years. We had a heyday about 10, 11 years ago, and something has happened, it's quieted. It's certainly true in this fellowship here. I mean, there was a time when miracles were flying around all over the place here a few years ago, not of recent years. I hope that's not because I've been coming in recent years. But can you see that there's definitely been this decline? And it's certainly the same in my own experience as well. As I look back a few years ago, and it is a few years ago now, I mean, I used to see the gifts of the Spirit working through me in profusion. No problem at all. And yet the last years, there's a decline, there's a struggle. They're not flowing as freely as they used to. And so what I want to do is to answer firstly that question, where have they all gone? Why is it that we have this decline amongst us at the moment? Now, if you go to Psalm 39, we can immediately begin to answer that question. Psalm 39, start reading from verse 1. Now listen to what he says. <coughs> this is David. He says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my mouth. I will bridle my mouth so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was dumb and silence, silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worth, worse. 
My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now, here's David. What he's saying, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let out all my frustration. I'm not going to start yelling and screaming at God. I'm not going to start saying things that I shouldn't say. And in the next verses, that's exactly what he does. Do you know the feeling? You say, I'm, I'm not going to give in to this temptation. And ten minutes later, you're sort of swimming in it up to your eyebrows. But now go down to verse 8, all right? Notice the context here is that David is struggling with his own sinfulness. Now, verse 8, he's praying now. So he says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the scorn of the fool. I am dumb, I do not open my mouth, for it is thou who hast done it. Remove your stroke from me, I am spent by the blows of your hand. When you chasten a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. I'm going to read that last bit again. This is David, well aware that God is dealing with his sinfulness. And listen to what he says. He says, when you chasten a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. The picture here is a moth flying around light, only today they fly around light bulbs. In the olden days, they flew around a candle or a lamp that was a literal flame. And the picture is a moth kind of flying ever, you know, orbiting closer and closer and closer until suddenly you've got the only way to make a moth sound like a dog. He goes, woof, <laughs> you see, he flies into the flame and woof, you see, up he goes. And that's the picture here that he's using. So here we have David musing over the fact that God was chastening him, all right? Now, we've seen in many, many studies here, particularly in the Salvation series, that when the Bible talks about God chastening his children, that in actual fact, we're talking about child training. We're not talking about punishment, you know, sort of God thrusting thunderbolts of retribution at you. We're talking about child training, the discipline, the way in which you have to bring up children. And remember, the entire process that Jesus is taking us through is that he's bringing baby Christians to maturity. Can you see? We all started life as baby Christians, and God wants to bring us to maturity. He wants us to grow up, all right? But in order for us to grow up, there are often many, many things which are good in themselves, and God allows us to have when we're young Christians, but somewhere along the line, sometimes they have to go because they're getting in the way of what God's trying to do in us. Now, they can come back later, but there's a stage sometimes when they get in the way. So there are things which are right and proper in themselves, but as God deals with us, he takes them away because they themselves are blocking what God is trying to do. And what I want to show you is that this is precisely what has happened with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to show you why it's important that this phase is gone through whereby the gifts are by and large taken away from us. You see, the thing is this. God is working a transition in our lives. And as I define this transition as it takes place, I'll actually be defining the difference between baby Christians, or carnal Christians as the Bible calls them, and mature Christians. Christians who are growing strong in the Lord. And it's this. It's the transition 
from wanting God because of what he does and because of what he gives to you, alright, through to wanting him for himself alone. Can you see? It's the transition from having the experience of when it boils down to it, wanting God because of what he does or because of what he gives you, alright, coming out of that and moving towards maturity, which is increasingly wanting him for himself alone. <coughs> I heard a story once of um, a father, and he had a little son, pride of his life, you know, sort of like three years old, and every day the father came home from work at exactly the same time, and the little boy knew exactly whatever the time was that garden gate would open and his dad would walk up the front drive, all right? And every day that son was there, he flew out the door and jumped up into his dad's arms, all right? It was, you know, I mean, the kid loved it and the dad loved it. It was absolutely incredible. You see, but the thing is, dad realized that he always had a box of sweeties in his pocket for the little boy, you see. So the little boy would fly out the front door every night greeting his dad and dad would give him a big kiss and take out the sweeties, you see. Anyway, one day, his dad thought, hmm, yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder. So what he did is that he said to the little boy, he said, now, um, I'm, I'm going to have to work a little bit late tonight, but I want to get home at exactly the same time, but it means that I won't be able to go to the sweet shop. So he said, tomorrow, I won't be able to get any sweeties for you. I just thought I'd tell you so you don't feel too sort of disappointed, you see. Anyway, the next night, he comes home exactly the right time, you see. He opens the front gate, and the little boy flies out because daddy's home. And he knew from that that the little boy wasn't just flying out to get his sweeties. I'm sure there are other little boys and other daddies who in a similar circumstance would walk up the garden path and I mean they get in the house and probably have dinner before they saw the little boy because he's so disappointed because he wasn't going to get any sweeties. Can you see the difference between a little boy who wants daddy for sweeties and a little boy who wants daddy because it's daddy, all right? And so therefore, God is working in us in regards to this. It is so easy, and I think we all do it, we all have to go through this, where in actual fact, Christians, although in their hearts they're saying, oh Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, oh aren't you wonderful, aren't you wonderful, because all our choruses say that. So they're saying and singing this an awful lot. But when it boils down to it, the point is they enjoy all the drama of God doing supernatural things. Can you see what I mean? In a sense, it's a phase where we're wanting God really for what we can get out of that relationship. Can you see? It's all the goodies, it's all the sweeties, the gifts of the Spirit that Father brings. <clears throat> I mean, just think about it. Think about the Christian scene today out there, all right? Now, Contra, you, you know the scene with all the dramatic ministries, because obviously it's not everyone who's really, you know, had the gifts of the Spirit taken away from them. There are still people moving in the gifts of the Spirit and just as well. But look what happens when you get a big speaker in the area who's got a healing ministry, or a big speaker in the area who's got a deliverance ministry. All right, and they come along, and there's a big meeting. The handbills are going out months and months in advance, and the Christians, they're herding in from a radius of 50 miles, aren't they? You, they're packing in like sardines, can't wait to get there. And if there's another one next week, even the better, and there they are, you know, doing the rounds. Okay. 
Contrast that with the number of believers you get at a Bible study. Does that ever strike you as odd? It's no problem to get crowds for healing. It's no problem to get dozens of Christians flocking in if there's going to be deliverance ministry. But if it's just a Bible teacher where you've got to do some work, do you see what I mean? Just teaching you the truth of God's word, that's all. That's all. Can you see? What a disappointing response to that. Can you see what I mean? Wanting God for what you can get out of him, all the drama, the gifts of the spirit, the sweeties, rather than wanting God for himself alone. That's maturity. You see, what we've got to realize is this. The gifts of the spirit are tools with which to do a job. They are not toys with which to play. But I think that our experience of the gifts of the Spirit in past years, and we were growing up in the Lord, no reason, you know, this isn't awful, we've all got to grow up, we've all got to be babies. But I think the body of Christ at large has tended to relate to the gifts of the Spirit rather as if they were toys. Can you see what I mean? Now, if a father has a son whom he cannot dislodge from the playroom, because all the son wants to do is to play with his Lego or his Masters of the Universe or whatever it is. Can you see? So that every time that that child, walk, uh, in the playroom, you know, he's got his Masters of the Universe and stuff like that, all right? Um, can't think of all their names now, but you know the people I mean, and he's got his Lego and he's got his robots and stuff like that. Happy as a lark, intelligent. But can you imagine a child that as soon as he walks out the playroom door, he's like a zombie? not interested in anything at all. Can you see, a father with a son like that has got a problem. He's got to get his son away from toys. There's nothing wrong with toys. But he's got to get his son away from toys because the toys are proving too much of a distraction for him to get on with the job of growing up and learning how to live and how to behave. So therefore, in a situation like that, a wise father will remove the toys to which his son has got addicted. Now, can you begin to see why it is that there's needed to be time, years, when God has, if you like, removed the gifts of the Holy Spirit? We were too busy playing with them. Remember, they're a fork with which to dig a garden. We had the entire body of Christ playing hopscotch over the fork, we had the entire body of Christ playing piggy in the middle, using the fork for a ball. Can you see? We have done everything with that fork except dig the garden. Can you see? So therefore, God has got to remove the toy aspect in order so that we can grow up into maturity. <coughs> you remember in our salvation series, when we did a couple of studies on um, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we saw how when the early church were baptized with the Spirit, the, the kind of the accompanying symbolism was a sound like the rushing of wind and tongues as of fire, the wind and the fire. And you'll remember that I said that the wind represented the power of God, but it was external, all right? The wind kind of blows about you. There's the gift of the Holy, there's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, external. But the fire was there representing God's holiness. 
Really, God wants to change us. He wants to share the quality of his life and his purity with us. And that is the fire that burns in us. So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's the external aspect, the gifts of the Spirit and the power, and there's the internal aspect, holiness or sanctification. Now, you see, the thing is that what's happened is that we've actually been at the point where God has had to remove the distractions of the externals because that's been getting in the way of God getting on with the internal work in us. Can you see what I mean? We have been too busy with externals. We have been too busy with the dramatic stuff. Can you see what I mean? I mean, just sort of still think that when you hear, oh, there's a big bloke with a really big dramatic ministry, that pull in your heart, oh, got to get there, got to get there. Got... Can you see what I mean? And this is saying we, this is not to disparage miraculous ministries. I'm coming on to that later. But I'm trying to show you why we have had to have this decline. They were proving a distraction because we were obsessed with them as baby Christians, we weren't using them properly, we were using them for our own ego trips and stuff like that, and therefore God has had to take them away in order that we can come to know him for himself alone. I've often told you how God had to deal with me very, very drastically, and this was after I'd been in ministry for years. And it got to the point where suddenly, this was a few years ago, God took my ministry away for three years. He just took it away. Boom. Okay. Now, what I discovered, I mean, I, it, it was awful for me. It was terrible. Now, what I discovered is that I had found my identity. I mean, I knew Jesus and I loved him. But I'd found my identity in the ministry that he called me to. Can you see what I mean? I hadn't found my identity in him. And I discovered that really he was my boss. He was my saviour and he was my boss. And he wanted to be my friend. Can you see? But I had all these barriers of a ministry around me. You know, I haven't got time for God to sort me out. I've got a ministry. You know, work to do. You know, there's people out there who need saving. There's a, you know, a body of Christ out there that needs teaching. Can you see? I was too busy with doing something external, ministry, and that actually that was preventing me really coming to know Jesus in the depth that he wanted me to. And it was only when he'd knocked my ministry down, you know, when I sort of emerged from underneath the rubble of my ministry and my Christian life, that I actually popped up and there was Jesus. You see what I mean? And I stopped relating to him as my boss. There wasn't a lot of, you know, point doing that. I mean, those of you who work for a boss, if you bankrupt them overnight, well, there's not a lot of point keep thinking of them as your boss because you're sacked, aren't you? And I realised that I got the sack, you see. But Jesus didn't want to be my boss. He just wanted to be my friend. Can you see? But I was too busy with the externals, and it was only when he took it away that I could really get to know Jesus as a personal friend. But even more exciting, I got to know him actually as my life. That was what caused the really dramatic change in me. Can you see? We've got to break through all this superficial stuff. And the gifts of the Spirit, though great and marvellous and, and useful of themselves, though they are, <coughs> even they can get in the way and prevent us from really growing in God. And if that ever happens, it doesn't matter what it is that gets between us and God, anything that comes between us and God, God will take away. He'll give it back later if it's a good thing, 
but it's got to go until it's no longer, if you like, an idol. Can you see what I mean? And Christians have idolised the gifts of the spirit, the drama of ministry, the tinsel, and that's what it is. It's Hollywood Christianity. We've got to get beyond that and find Jesus for himself alone. Think of it like this. In order to really enjoy a pint of Guinness, you've got to break through the froth and bubble that sits on the top. Now, can you see, we've got to break through the froth and bubble that the gifts of the Spirit created, and we've got to get to the Guinness. Well, not the Guinness, we've got to get to God. But believe me, like Guinness, he is good for you. Can you see what I mean? So the point is, can you see, temporarily, the froth and the bubble has had to go alright, so that we can come to maturity. Now that is why we have seen a decline in the gifts of the Spirit. But, having said that, let me emphasise, it's a temporary decline. Now as far as we're concerned in this fellowship, I can't speak about other fellowships, but I believe that the time is now coming when God wants to give them back. You see what I mean? We have survived as a fellowship without miracles all the time. And there was a time, certainly for me years back, where if someone wasn't healed, or if someone wasn't baptised in the Spirit, or if someone wasn't converted, or if there wasn't a prophecy that had people in tears, I used to go and think, oh, fat lot of good that was, wasn't it? Oh, the fact that Jesus was there didn't, you know, didn't seem to, to matter to me particularly, can you and so, therefore, it's, it's important to realise this. They are going to come back. God wants to bring them back. Now, this leads on to the second question, all right. Right, there's been a decline. God wants to bring the gifts back. But the decline has meant failure in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, because we've tried and we've tried and we've tried, and it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked because God hasn't wanted it to work. But that didn't stop us trying, does it? Have you noticed that when God says he doesn't want you to do something, that doesn't stop you trying to do it? Well, it's been exactly the same with the gifts of the Spirit. So the second question is this. If that decline has now left us despairing, can you see? Because we've had now so many abortive attempts at the gifts of the Spirit, it's a bit understandable if we think, oh, good grief, we're not doing very well. So if this decline that God has brought, you know, that, that God has arranged in the gifts of the Spirit, if that has left us despairing, and I think, in a way, it has, therefore, how do we get faith back for the gifts of the Spirit? Can you see the problem of the second question? And this is where we really are now. It's this question. Uh, the first question answered why we've been through what we've been through. But answering this question is going to show us how we proceed from this point. All right. So therefore, there are many of us here, other places as well, um, that, uh, well, you know, our experience of the gifts of the Spirit of last year hasn't been good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It hasn't been as positive as it used to be. And sometimes there's a battling of despair. There's a sense in which, uh, you know, sort of maybe, well, I mean, the, you know, the last 500 people I prayed for got worse after I did, you know. I mean, sort of, they asked me to pray that the Lord would heal them and they got worse, you know. Now, when that's happened 500-odd times, that sometimes makes it hard to pray for the 501st, doesn't it? Can you see? Now, how do we overcome that kind of despair? Also, in answering this question, this is going to answer the problem that those of you had who never had the faith for the gifts of the Spirit in the first place. Can you see? There are some of us here who used to, but don't have now, but there are others who never had. 
Now this question is going to, you know, it's going to answer for both types of people. I mean, after all, I remember in the early years when I became a Christian, and then when the Lord first called me into ministry, um, I can honestly say that all I had to do was ask God, and He did it. Do you know what I mean? That is all I had to do. If I asked God to do something, He did it, alright? And for years, it was like that, okay? Um, but it's different now. It just doesn't work like that. And I think the one character in the Bible who can really kind of help us here is old Moses. Now remember Moses. Moses had a calling from God, didn't he? Yeah, he's only a young man. He had a calling from God to set his people free out of Egypt. And he caught that vision and bang, out he went there to do it, didn't he? And I mean, he blew it totally. He moved out of God's time. He, he was cock-sure. Can you see? And out he went to deliver his people all on his own because God told him to, you know? The result of that was he became a murderer and the Israelites ended up more oppressed because of what Moses did. They weren't helped. Moses thought, God wants me to do this, well. and out, with all the confidence in the world, out he went to do it. Moses' problem was cocksureness and arrogance. The thing is, cocksureness and arrogance can sometimes look like faith, but all that's glitters, all that glitters isn't gold, as we know. That is what God had to deal with in Moses. He loved the Lord, but there was just too much of Moses and his confidence and self-confidence in the way. God had to deal with it. <clears throat> now, you've probably noticed that God deals with stuff like that in a place called the wilderness, doesn't it? The wilderness is the place where you've got nothing going for you whatsoever. The wilderness is the place where, well, everything went right for the first years of being a Christian, but now everything is going wrong. That's the wilderness, all right? And Moses got dumped in the wilderness for 40 years. And that 40 years humbled him. He stopped relying on himself and he began to rely on God. But you see, the thing is, after that 40 years, God called him again. He said, Moses, now it's time. Now the right time has come for you to move. I'm ready now. It wasn't 40 years ago, Moses. I'm ready now. Do it. And it's fascinating to look at the contrast between his response at the beginning and his response then. In the beginning, he couldn't wait. Boom, straight out there like a jackrabbit doing God's work. After God had really dealt with him, God called him again and said, right now it's time. And all you got from Moses was hesitancy. That's all you got from him. He came up with loads of excuses why it couldn't be him. You know, he said, oh, I can't speak very well, I stutter, and oh, I'm the wrong man for the job, and you know what they think of me. He was all excuses. Can you see the result of that 40 years in the wilderness was that in the beginning he had faith, but he had no maturity. God had to deal with it. But as God dealt with him, he came to helplessness, which is maturity. The more helpless you are in Jesus, the more mature you are. He came to that place of helplessness and maturity, but he didn't have a lot of faith. Can you see? Because he knew that his faith had been so mixed up with self-confidence in the, in the past, now he hardly dared feel he had any. Can you see? And that God is working that transition in us. Baby Christians, <coughs> young Christians are given faith irrespective of bearing fruit, irrespective of the quality of life that they've got, 
God still gives them faith is to start them off. You know, it's their kick-off, as it were, isn't it? You know, get kick, kicked out of the nest, and it's the gravity that pulls them down. Faith galore, no maturity, no maturity whatsoever, bringing more dishonour to God than honour, but God expects that of us when we're baby Christians, no problem at all. But you see, when the time comes to grow up, then God will not give faith outside of maturity. Can you see what I mean? Faith and maturity need to be linked. So rather like Moses, I think what we've experienced is that if we had faith way back when, when we weren't mature Christians, now God is bringing us to a greater maturity, but like Moses, we rather find faith failing us. Can you see what I mean? We've become accustomed to our own failure. We're hesitant to step out anymore. And you see, the thing is, God doesn't want us to be like that. It's a natural reaction in us, and he understands it, but it's not how he wants us to be. So therefore, what we've got to ask is, okay, our faith has taken a knock over the years. How are we going to get the gifts going again? How are we going to get back the faith now that we once had those years ago? Now let me first of all start with telling you what you mustn't do. The way you mustn't try is the approach of the faith teachers. You know the faith teachers, don't you? They write books, they make lots of money, they dispense tapes falling out of their ears. And what they say is this, brother, have more faith. Believe harder, you know? And you go along to their meetings, and it's rather like a little clockwork toy, and they wind you up, and they expect <laughs> you to get going, don't they? They're trying to crank up the old faith in you, aren't they? And they're saying, come on, you've got to do it. You've got to have faith. Come on, I want to see you believing harder. Are you believing? And like a load of absolute zombie-type clones, we're all supposed to say, yes, I'm <coughs> believing more, sir, can you see? Now, that is not the way to go about getting faith. Let's face it, what, I made a list. We've got today claiming faith, we've got positive faith, we've got confessing faith, we've got praying faith, we've got visualising faith. We've got every type of, every technique to get faith under the sun. It purely depends on what the last top ten Christian paperback was, all right? And whatever the last top ten Christian paperback said, we're all supposed to be doing it. Can you see? And I mean, that, that is crazy. This is why Christians are herded from big meetings to big meetings, rather like junkies after their fix. Can you see? That is the mentality it spawned. Now, the reason... <coughs> that that is not the way to grow in faith is quite simply this. Because quite frankly, and let's be honest, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It obviously works for the guys up the front, yeah. I mean, you take these books about financial prosperity, and they're saying you believe for prosperity, all you've got to do is believe and it'll come to you. Alright? Okay. And they say, works for me, it'll work for you. Now, I've never met anyone it's worked for who's just an ordinary pleb believer like us, because we're the plebs here, alright? And I'll tell you why it doesn't work for us, and I'll tell you why is it works for them. Because these guys are saying, I have proved God financially, alright? I've proved it, faith, if I can do it, you can do it. But what you don't have is a captive audience of some millions of people to whom you send out your magazine, telling them God wants to bless you financially. 
But the way that God blesses financially is by you giving. And I hereby enclose a form for your <laughs> pledge. Can you see? That's why it works for them. They've got everything going for them, can you see? They're talking about faith and God blessing them, whereas really what they're doing is they're just milking the saints. Can you see? We've got to be honest about this. All this faith teacher approach, it doesn't work. Isolated incidences, yeah, of course. But I could tell you about incredible miracles that God's done for me. I could sit here and probably keep you enthralled for an hour. And, and you think, oh wow, the miracles that God's worked for Beresford. And as you sit here listening to it for an hour, you would get, you know, or in a 150-page paperback, you get the impression, wow, Beresford has signs and wonders for breakfast, doesn't he? You see? <laughs> but what you'd be missing out on, what you'd be missing out on, is that I have probably spent that hour or that entire 150-page paperback writing down or telling you about every miracle God has ever worked for me in 17 years. Can you see? And you probably work out on average, well, at the end of hearing it, you think, wow, this guy gets miracles every, oh, I would imagine it was three and a half hours. The truth is, it's probably more like every three and a half years. But these guys don't tell you that, because that cramps their style, doesn't it? Can you see? It doesn't work. The only thing, it, it does one of two things. Now, as I've spoken with many, many Christians who have been subjected to it, it has one of two effects, all right? Usually, it simply disillusions people. Because they try it with the best will in the world and it doesn't work. And they're disillusioned with it. That's a terrible thing, because they're actually disillusioned by God. But they've been given false, unbiblical expectations. So that's the first thing it does, and there are loads of disillusioned Christians wandering around, going nowhere. <coughs> but at least the ones who get disillusioned are being honest. The second effect it has on people is far more serious, because it can also lead to pretense. And I've met Christians who are going around and the way they talk about how they live, they're using all the terminology of the faith teachers, you know. And I mean, the faith teaching demands that if you pray for someone who's sick, then you believe because the Bible tells you to that they're healed, all right? So, whereas, I mean, sort of, say, say, if I, say, say I'd prayed for someone last night, all right, and I prayed for them, and this morning they're still sick. Now, me, I'd say, I prayed for the Lord to heal someone last night, it didn't work, all right? I mean, you, you know where you stand with that. But these guys, they say, we pre there was a healing last night. Is he? There wasn't a healing last night. But can you see, their terminology demands that their faith say there was a healing. Can you see? Are they kidding themselves? They're walking around in absolute pretense, and they're spouting faith, 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 and they're so busy doing it, they don't even notice that not one thing of what they're saying is actually happening to them. Can you see? It leads to disillusion, or it leads to pretense. That is not the way to grow in faith, and I will tell you now why. It is because that is not true faith at all. That is not what the Bible teaches about faith. You see, this faith teaching stuff, I'll tell you what that is, that's you trying to have faith. And you've just got the big boys up there winding you up. 
all right, holding the carrot in front of you, all right, giving you the incentive. That is you trying to have faith. And let me tell you, that is absolutely useless, all right. If you are trying to believe something, if you're trying to, oh Lord, I'm believing, I'm believing, all right, if you're trying to believe, that is the surest sign you could ask for that you ain't believing, that that is not true faith at all. You see, the thing is, that whole thing, this whole faith, faith, faith teaching business, it depends on you. See, it's all down to you. It's down to your capacity to believe. Can you see? Now, the reason it's wrong and the reason it's not biblical is because the focus is on precisely the wrong person. The focus is on you. And when it comes to you growing in faith, there is one person that the focus mustn't be on, and that's you. All right. Turn to Luke. Let's find out what the Bible teaches about true faith. Luke chapter 17. <coughs> Luke 17 and verse 5. Now look at this. The apostles said to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Now, this is exactly what we're talking about tonight. They say, Lord, will you increase our faith? All right? Now, look what Jesus said. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this sycamine tree, be rooted up and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I want you to see that Jesus is giving one of his famous cryptic answers here. They said, Jesus, will you increase our faith, please? They're saying, will you give us more faith, please? <coughs> All right. Now, when you ask someone a question like that, there are two possible answers. Yes, no. I suppose this possibly gets stuffed. I don't want to talk to you about it. But I don't think Jesus would have said that to them. So there are only really two kind of... It's either yes or no. Will you or won't you, Lord? Yay or nay? All right. Now, look what Jesus says. He doesn't say, yes, I will. And he doesn't say, no, I won't. He says, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, Jesus doesn't say, they're saying, Jesus, give us more faith. And Jesus says, no, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. Now, can you see, what Jesus is saying here, the disciples are thinking that faith is a quantitative thing. They're thinking it's rather like, um, you know, you can go out and buy a pound of sugar, can't you? All right. You know, sort of maybe last year you had a pound of faith, and, and now if you're really growing in the Lord, it's up to a pound and a half, you know, something like that. <laughs> they're thinking of faith as quantity, Okay. Now, Jesus absolutely stymies them because they're saying, Lord, increase it. We want more. He responds, if you had faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, he says, no, you don't need more at all. You only need a tiny amount. Now, you see, the thing is, they only did have a tiny amount. Can you see? But the point was, Jesus isn't saying to them, oh, you've got a tiny amount, that's all right. Jesus says, no, you don't want more faith. You only need a tiny little bit of faith. Well, that's all they had, but it still wasn't working. And what I want to show you is quite simply this, <coughs> that Jesus is talking about a totally different faith. They say, Lord, increase our faith, and Jesus says, no. It's not a quantitative thing, it's a qualitative thing. All right, Let, just, just go to John, 20, uh, John 12. Let's cross-reference this with something. Jesus introduces the thinking 
about a little grain, a seed, all right? Mustard seed. Now in John 12, and in verse 20, it says, Now those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and they came to Philip, and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus went and told Andrew, Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. So Jesus has been asked a question here. Jesus, there are some people who want to see you. How can this happen? Now look what Jesus said. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, now there's a little grain of something again, falls into the earth and dies, it, bear, uh, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears more fruit. Now then, what I want to show you is what Jesus is actually getting at here. They said to him, Lord, give us more faith. And Jesus says, you don't need more faith, you just need faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. Well, that's all the faith they had anyway, but it still wasn't working. Because Jesus was talking about a totally different concept of faith. In effect, what Jesus said to them, they say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus was saying, no. But not only am I not going to increase your faith, your faith must die. Because it's our faith that's getting in the way. And what I want to show you, that when the Bible talks about faith, what true faith is, it's talking about the faith of Jesus himself released in us. At every point, as we do year in, year out, as we're studying the scriptures here, we're seeing one thing again and again and again and again. We produce nothing from ourselves. The Christian life is Jesus living through us. It's not our faith we need. We need to have the faith of Jesus himself released in us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we preached among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Having a problem with God answering your prayers in the affirmative, all right? Well, I mean, here he's saying, look, you know, God is always wanting to answer in the affirmative. But look what he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we utter the Amen through him. But it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Can you see what, Paul, what Paul's saying there? The secret to answered prayer, and we know that it, answered prayer is through faith, is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In him all the promises of God are yea and amen. It's not our faith we need, it's the faith of Jesus himself. Go to Mark 11. Mark 11, I want to show you two scriptures where I think the truth probably is that the translators didn't have the nerve to translate the Bible literally from the Greek. Mark 11 and verse 22. Now look at this. Um, I've got lost. Mark 11, yeah, and verse 22. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, by the way, that's a symbolic mountain, alright? If you want to follow that up on your own, Zechariah 4, verses 6 to 10, I'm not going to home into that now. But he says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him, alright? Now then, so here, 
our Bible say, all right, here are the disciples amazed that Jesus worked a miracle. And Jesus is saying, you can work miracles. You can work miracles. I want to work miracles through you as well. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, that's what the faith teachers say. Are we now going to discover that old BJ's been wrong all the way through this little talk and that Jesus was a faith teacher after all? Well, no, we're not, because I'll tell you, Jesus did not say, have faith in God. That is not what the original Greek manuscript reads. And no scholar disputes it. They just won't translate it literally. I will tell you precisely and literally in the Greek what Jesus said. He said, it doesn't make sense to begin with, have faith of God. Put that into English that makes sense. Jesus didn't say have faith in God. He said have the faith of God. Can you see the difference? Jesus said have the faith of God. Go down into verse 23. <clears throat> I'm saying to you that if you're trying to believe, that's not faith. That might be your faith, but that's not the faith we need. Now, Lord Jesus says, he says, look, he says, um, but and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That is speaking of utter certainty. Not this trying to convince yourself True faith is utter certainty, and I'll tell you why it's utter certainty. Because Jesus is absolutely certain about what he intends to do. Now, when Jesus' faith is revealed through us, we'll be motoring. Not this killing ourselves to believe, or anything like that. My goodness. Go to Galatians. I'll show you another one. Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2 and verse 20. I'll read what it says in our versions, and then I'll give you a literal translation. Right. I have, this is Paul, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There's the old faith teachers again, isn't it? Oh, you've got to have faith in the Son of God. You've got to live by faith. You've got to have more faith, brother. Okay? Right. Now I will give you a literal translation of what Paul actually wrote. And that which I now live in the flesh, in the faith I live of the Son of God. Or to put it another way, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Can you see the incredible difference there? We're seeing here that true faith is the faith of Jesus himself released in us. That is what true faith is. That is where God wants to take us into the future. So that immediately asks another question, doesn't it, that we've got to address, right, how on earth do we get Jesus' faith? And what I want to show you is that the answer to that, in fact, has got nothing to do with faith whatsoever. If you want to know, <coughs> how can I come through into... Right, if you're asking the question, right, so how do I actually get the faith of Jesus? 
I mean, inward step the faith teaches. Well, you have faith for it, don't you? You, you claim it. You claim it by faith. Well, I want to show you that the Bible's answer to this is, is not faith at all. In actual fact, the Bible's answer to this is hope. Now, hope is one of the totally lost truths of the Bible today, all right? The charismatic movement got so obsessed with faith, it never understood what hope was. And I'm going to show you from the Bible what hope is. And sadly, because the charismatic movement forgot, well, was ignorant about hope, we've OD'd on faith. Can you see? We're all in our death throes when it comes to faith because we've overdosed on it because we didn't understand what the Bible taught about hope. And that what I want us to do now is to move on and to have a look at what the Bible teaches about the relationship between faith and hope. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. You will remember that in effect what we're doing is a study on 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. So go to 1 Corinthians 13. <coughs> And let's actually just see this thing about hope in the Bible. All right. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7. Now listen to this. Love bears all things, believes all things. Now there's faith, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Go down into verse 13. So faith, hope, love, abide these three but the greatest is love now I'll bet you couldn't even begin to calculate how many little teaching things you've heard on faith and how many little teaching things you've heard on love alright and uh, this course incidentally will end with love alright we've done faith and the gifts tonight we're on hope and then we'll be moving forward in a few studies time to love but think the number of times you've heard sermons on love the number of times you've heard sermons on faith, when was the last teaching, really systematic teaching, you got about hope? I would imagine it was possibly a long, long time ago, if indeed ever. Can you see, hope has been left out of our vocabulary. Hebrews 11 verse 1, Paul says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Paul talks about hope nearly as much as he does faith. We don't. Do we? We've got to start doing it. Go to 1 Peter 1. <coughs> 1 Peter. Chapter 1 and verse 21. He says, through him, that is Jesus, you have confidence in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you read through the New Testament again, do it when you get home before you go to bed, all right? Something like that, staying up late to watch the results of the American election or something like that, okay? Read through your New Testament again, and you'll find that Paul can hardly open his mouth about faith without sticking hope in. You know, I mean, Paul was not a faith teacher like we've got today. Paul was a faith, love and hope teacher. All right, can you see? He certainly wasn't a faith teacher like we've got today. Right, so what exactly is this relationship between faith and hope? Paul can't shut up about it. Peter can't shut up about it, all right? The Bible can't shut up about it. So we'd better understand it, hadn't we? What is the relationship between faith and hope? Right, go to Jeremiah. 
Now, Jeremiah is often thought to be uh, the prophet of doom and gloom, which, in a sense, he was. But he was also the prophet of hope. Jeremiah, first of all, find chapter 29. Jeremiah, chapter 29. <coughs> and verse 11. And he says this. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Go over to chapter 31 and verse 17. And again, this is God speaking. He says, there is hope for your future, says the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now, what I want to ask you, in those two verses about hope, God speaking to Israel about hope, what was the key word? It was future. It was future. Bear that in mind. The key word when it comes to hope is future. Let's have a look at the New Testament about hope. Go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Through him, that is Jesus, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. When will we totally share the glory of God? When we die at the, or at the rapture? That's in the future. Can you see? That's in the future. Go to Colossians. Chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, first full verse 4. He says, Because we have heard of your faith, you see, here goes Paul again. Here he goes again. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Well, when is our experience of heaven going to be? It's in the future. It's got to be. We're all alive. We go to heaven when we're dead. That is yet future. Can you see the emphasis here? Go over to verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We share the glory of God in the future. Now, can you see that what we've got is this? Faith is always to do with present tense. Faith is always here and now. Faith... <laughs> For those hearing the tape, I just killed a mosquito barehanded. Right. Faith... Faith is always to do with here and now, alright? It's moment by moment. Or if you like modern terminology, Faith is always existential. It's to do with now, what's happening at this instant, all right? For instance, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, don't turn to it. Paul says, for we walk by faith. That is now. We live our ongoing Christian lives now, in this moment of time, by faith. That's to do with now. Romans 1, 17, he says... The righteous shall live by faith, and we're living now, in this moment of time. 
Can you see faith is always in the Bible a now thing? It's to do with what Jesus is doing for us now. But hope, in total contrast, is always for something that is yet to be. Alright? Back to Jeremiah. Sorry about this. Jeremiah 14 and verse 8. Remember, he's our prophet of hope. Jeremiah 14 verse 8. Listen to what he says. Oh, he says, O oh, thou hope of Israel, its saviour in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a wayfarer who turns aside to tarry for a night? Here, he's saying, Lord, you're not coming, but we need you to come. But he says, Israel, hope in God. Alright? Hope in God. And he calls God the hope of Israel. Now go to Acts 28 and actually see what that phrase, hope of Israel, means. And you'll understand what I'm getting at here. Acts 28, verse 20. And Paul says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound in this chain. Paul was in prison, and Paul says, I'm in prison because of the hope of Israel. Can you see the hope of Israel was Jesus? Can you see? So the point we've got in this, in the Old Testament, Israel was longing for their God, their Messiah, to come to them. And then, by the time we get to New Testament, Jesus actually came. Can you see? Israel wanted Messiah. They hoped for Messiah. His coming yet lay in the future, but then in Jesus, he eventually came. Can you see? Hope is always to do with something that isn't yet, but that is going to be in time. And in Psalm 130, verse 7, one of the constant themes of the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, is, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word for hope <coughs> is yashar, right? Yashar. Sounds posh, doesn't it? My Buckersill accent. Yashar, right? And it means to wait with hope. Now, can you see it again? Hope always involves waiting because it's involving something that is going to be that isn't yet. And the Greek word for hope is elpis, and it means a confident expectation. And this word elpis, when it's used in the Greek, it always relates to the as yet unseen, which still lies in the future. But in English, the word hope, it's kind of got, oh, I hope it's sunny tomorrow. I mean, it's very wet in the English. That isn't what the Greek word means. It's an absolute certainty, all right? It's a confident expectation that something that you haven't seen yet, you are going to see one day when the time comes. And this is the key to it. The key to it is God's timing. He's not in a hurry. I've said this many times before here. God isn't growing a backyard full of mushrooms. He's growing a forest of oaks. And it takes longer. We have got to learn to give God the time that he needs. Go back to Romans 5. We've already seen this verse in regards to hope. Now let's see, the, see it in its surrounding context. <clears throat> he says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, that's here and now, we are, present tense, that's faith, we have peace with God. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now that's time going by, isn't it? Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Can you see, hope is knowing that which, although we haven't got it yet from Jesus, we are going to get it. And hope is the absolute certainty that that is going to be the case. Now, thus far, this is what we've got. For what God is doing now, for what God intends to do now, this minute, we may have faith. Faith claims what God is doing now. But for that which he intends to do later, in the future, for whatever reason, he wants to leave until the future, but for that which he intends to do at a later date, we have hope until it turns into faith at God's time. Now, I want to break this down further and apply this in, in, in a more specific way, all right, and, and see how hope applies to us. Firstly, there are things that you and I are going to have after death or after the rapture that you can't have now. For instance, you are going to have a glorified body, a perfect body, just like Jesus's. You are going to have total freedom from sin just like Jesus has. But you see, the thing is, you cannot have faith for those things. And I'll tell you why, because they are unavailable to you. The trouble with some Christians is they want heaven, everything, the whole caboodle, down here now. You can't have it. Glorified body, total freedom for th from sin, these are things that are unavailable to us now. You cannot have faith for them. You can say you have faith for them, but you're kidding yourself. Can you see, faith is irrelevant to this particular aspect of our Christian life. Let's face it, you cannot claim your life insurance sum until you're dead. Try it. They won't pay you, you see? Can you see? You've got to wait till you're dead. And there are some things which we are going to have when we're dead. <coughs> now, you have hope for them, absolute certainty. But it's hope, not faith, because you can't have them yet, all right? It's hope for the future, but you can't have faith. So there's the first category. Some things that you're going to have one day, but you can't have down here at all. Hope, but no faith. Faith is a no-no there. Now, secondly, there are other things that you will have in this life. No, no two ways about it. God wants you to have them, and you are going to have them, but you're not going to get them yet, because he wants to mature you further. And there are many things that God wants us to have that, quite frankly, he can't trust us with now. You don't give a five-year-old a pellet gun. Can you see what I mean? So there are things that we are going to have. They're ours. Jesus has won them for us. They are ours by right. And God wants us to have them, but we can't have them yet for the reason that God is saying, I'm not going to give them to you yet. You're not ready. I am the one holding off. All right? Now, for those things, you can't have faith. You can go home and claim them tonight if you like. I mean, for instance, I'll, I'll give you examples. All right? For instance, a better job. Now, there may be some of you praying for a better job or praying for promotion. Now, you may know from the Lord in your heart that he said, I'm going to give that to you. And you know it's going to be yours. But you might not be ready for it yet. Can you see? 
I mean, if you went up the ladder at your job now, you might become the most hated person amongst all the people under you by next year, because it'll go to your head. You see what I mean? Therefore, say with a better job, yeah, sure, God has said you can have a better job, and he's got that for you, promotion. But it's in the future. And you can't get it now, no matter what you do, because you're not mature enough for it. He's got to deal with you further, all right? Therefore, I don't care what any of the faith teachers say, you can go home tonight and you can claim it by faith and expect the job offer in the post in the morning, but you're going to be disappointed, mum, you see? Because it's not going to come. You're not ready for it. Can you see? Faith is irrelevant to that particular thing. You hope. You know it's going to come, but you hope. Marriage is another one. There are many people, they know they're going to marry. And that's fine, God has given us the right to marry, no problem. But can you see, for whatever reason maybe, you're not ready yet. It's going to happen. But God's saying, can't quite yet, won't work out, got to deal with you a little bit more, then I'll bring your wife, or then I'll bring your husband along, no problem. Now for that you have hope. You can't go home and claim it tomorrow morning. Because if God gave it to you, it would be a disaster. Isn't it better to wait five years than to end up in the divorce courts after two? Can you see what I mean? God is sensible in what he does. A ministry. Maybe there are people here who feel they've got a ministry, and absolutely fine. You know, maybe Bible teacher, healer, what is it? You know, whatever. But I'll tell you, the limelight is a dangerous place. God's got to deal with you before you can handle the limelight. Can you see what I mean? So therefore, yeah, for the future, but not yet. Now, in those instances, God has got something for you, and you're going to get it. You know you're going to get it. But you have hope. It's no use trying to have faith for it because God's time hasn't come yet and there's nothing you can do in regards to that. You can't claim it by faith, alright? Don't claim Yashar, alright? That's what you've got to do. Wait with hope, knowing that it's going to come. You see, I'm not trying to find a get-out and say, oh, well, the miracles will come one day and saying that, well, of course, it doesn't matter if they don't. I'm saying they are going to come. This is no cop-out. Boy, we're going to see them. But I'm saying in God's time, but until that time comes, then we hope. Can you see areas in our lives where God is saying, not yet, all right, but it is definitely going to happen. Know that it's going to happen, but it's hope. Don't try and have faith. You'll get disillusioned or end up pretending. And then there's a third category, and this is important. The third category are things that God has for us at any time. He wants us to have them now. These are things that it's not God who's holding off. He wants us to have them now, but we can't receive them yet for the precise reason that we aren't released in the faith of Jesus. Can you see? So this third category are things that God wants us to have now, but we are the ones who aren't ready to receive. Can you see the difference between this and the previous one? The previous one are things that God, you know, that we're saying, now Lord, now Lord, and God's saying, wait, 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 okay. This category is where God's saying, now, 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 and we're saying, wait, 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 all right. Because we haven't got, we haven't grown into the faith of Jesus. <clears throat> so therefore, the point here is that there are things that God wants to give us, and this is where the gifts of the Spirit come in. He wants to give them to us now, but we need more time in order for the faith of Jesus to be produced in us for them. For instance, healing. Let me tell you, God wants you healed. There's no question of that. Okay, so why do we have such an awful record 
when it comes to praying for healing. Is that because God doesn't want to heal? No. It's because we're not moving in the faith of Jesus yet. That's all. That's all. So we have hope. We simply accept that we're not ready yet, but God is getting us ready. Can you see, in regards to healing, stuff like that, God wants to give it to us now, but for whatever reason, we don't have the faith. I've told you about me and the old cigarettes. I cannot give up smoking. I have not got the faith to chuck them away. Sorry, how do I know that? Because I've done it more times than I can remember. And I'm always back there the next morning, scrabbling through whatever waste paper bin, no matter where it was, I chucked them. All right, but the point is, does God want Beresford delivered of smoking? You bet he does, you see. But I haven't got the faith. But I'll tell you one thing, I know that one day God's going to deliver me. Can you see? Whereas I haven't got the faith to receive it now, I know that one day I will. Now that is hope, can you see? So the point is this, regardless, even if it's something that you know God wants to give you now, like healing or whatever, okay, if you don't have the faith to claim it, and I'll tell you how you know if you haven't got the faith to claim it. If you've claimed it and it hasn't happened, you haven't got the faith to claim it. That's how you know. Can you see what I mean? So if you haven't got the faith to claim it, accept that fact. This is vitally important. If you don't have the faith, accept it. Whatever you do, don't try to pretend that you have got faith. Can you see what I'm saying? If you haven't got faith, admit it. Alright, don't try and kid yourself or other people. Don't worry about it, that you haven't got the faith, and whatever you do, don't try and work it up. We've already seen that that's not real faith at all. Alright, don't go to more meetings to try and get wound up. Don't do it. Can you see? Simply rest in hope. Can you see? Know that one day God's going to get that through to you. Just rest in hope and leave it in God's hands. Can you see what I'm saying? Don't pretend. Don't kid yourself. Don't try and work it up. Accept that you don't have the faith to come into what the Lord's got for you now. Alright? Accept that and then have hope. Know that in time God is going to enable you to. Alright? Now this is exactly the same with besetting sin. Go back to Psalm 39 where we first started off because all of us have sin that beats us. The sooner we realize that and are honest about it the better as well. Now Psalm 39 we've already seen it was David you know and God dealing with him. Now look at this and now Lord for what do I wait? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Now, can you see what David's doing here? He's struggling with sin that's beating him. And do you know what he's saying? He says, well, I'm just going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to have hope. I'm not going to get depressed about it. I am just going to have hope. Can you see what we're seeing here? In effect, hope is faith for the future. Let's start summing up. There is a sequence here that I want you to get hold of. First of all, true faith and everything we receive from God is by faith, alright? True faith is the faith of Jesus himself produced in us. Not our faith, not trying to believe, not trying to work it up, get into a frenzy. True faith 
is the faith of the Son of God produced in us. Now, in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, because this is our main subject, although can you see this applies to many areas of the Christian life, we're doing it in the context of the gifts of the Spirit, but in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, or whatever, or whatever, all right, if you don't have immediate now faith, you see what I mean by that? If you don't have faith now, simply rest and be at peace in hope. Vital point coming up. Don't worry about it. If you haven't got the faith for something you ought to have faith for, don't worry about it. It's God's responsibility to get that faith in you. It's your responsibility to wait and let him do it. And I'll tell you why it's vital that you mustn't worry. And it's simply this. Paul said, in nothing be anxious. Now that tells me that worry and anxiety is a sin. Does it tell you that? So if you're not in faith, when you should be in faith, and you know it, whatever you do, don't worry about it, because all you then do is get another sin in the way of God producing the faith of Jesus in you. Can you see how totally counterproductive it is to worry about it? Can you see? Don't worry about it. Be at peace. In nothing be anxious. And when Paul said in nothing be anxious, he meant it. In nothing. I'll tell you something else that you shouldn't be anxious about. Don't be anxious about your sin. This is vitally important. Don't worry about your sin. Repent of it. The difference is as wide as the world. And when you've confessed a sin, forget it. Don't worry about it. It's gone. Can you see? But if you confess a sin, and then you're worried about it, all you've done is you've committed another one. Now, it's stupid, isn't it? Can you see? So don't worry about it, leave it in God's hands. So that's the first thing. If you don't have now faith, that means that Jesus' faith hasn't been producing you in that area. Okay? Accept it. Alright? Don't worry about it at all. Just rest in hope. There's another thing you mustn't do. Do not try to work it up yourself. Now I'll tell you why you mustn't do that. Because that is another sin. It's called unbelief. Alright? Because the Bible says that faith, true faith, is the faith of Jesus produced in us. How do you work up the faith of Jesus, for heaven's sake? You can work yourself up. Have you ever noticed that? If you get in a tiswatch, you work yourself up. Well, I mean, if you've got someone who's really at peace with God, you can work yourself up all you like, but it won't affect them. It won't work them up. Can you see? You can't work up the faith of Jesus, because it's his, it's not yours. If you work yourself up, alright, and stuff like that, trying, 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 that's unbelief. You're saying, no, it's not yours, Jesus, it's mine. No, it's my responsibility to produce it. Can you see it? And all it does is something else in the way of Jesus producing his faith in you. Can you see? So then, the point is that if faith has failed you today, very probably, it should have just been a quiet hope for some time later on. Now, can you see the worry and the heaviness that this is going to take off your shoulders when you get a revelation of this. All the worrying we do, trying to have faith, not our responsibility. Our responsibility isn't to have faith. Our responsibility is to have hope. The areas of your life where God has produced the faith of Jesus in you, you're working, you're living quite naturally in faith. 
In fact, the difficulty would be to stop. Can you see what I mean? The difficulty would be to stop and doubt. Can you see? God is wanting to produce the faith of Jesus in us. Now, I want you to remember this sequence, all right? And this is what you must go away with tonight. You must know, because of the Bible, what the Bible teaches, and remember, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, all right? Now, everything I've told you tonight is what the Word of God says. I don't think anyone's going to dispute that. You know, we've, we've proved it quite clearly, okay? So, therefore, the Word of God says it. It's true, all right? Therefore, what I've said to you tonight is true. It can be believed. It's absolute fact, all right? Therefore, because it's a fact, you can know it. So, know, all right, and be absolutely assured that what God is unable to do in or through you today because of your limitations, what he is unable to do in or through you today, he will be able to do in or through you when you've given him a bit more time. All right? <clears throat> As you simply rest in Jesus about all the things that you're in defeat about, as you simply rest in Jesus, having that quiet assurance for the future, which is hope, having that quiet assurance that God is going to do it in you, because he said he, he would, then, in God's time, that hope that you have, that certainty that for the future, will become faith. In God's time, it will become faith. And the moment it becomes faith, you will then enter into the reality of what you once hoped for because true faith always becomes sight. Can you see that? As you hope, as you quietly rest in the Lord knowing that one day he's going to do it, it's that peaceful attitude that is keeping you in right relationship with God so that the Holy Spirit <laughs> can work in you to produce the faith of Jesus. Then, in God's time, one day, the hope will become faith. And because it will be true faith, then what you're having faith for will happen, and it will become faith. Uh, sight. Hope becomes faith, all right? And faith always becomes sight. But if you worry about it, or if you try and work it up, all you do is short-circuit it. Can you see? That will keep you out of fellowship with God in the very area of your life where he is trying to produce the faith of Jesus. And remember, when your hope in God's time does turn into faith, and therefore into reality afterwards, that will be for one reason only, because the faith of Jesus himself has been produced in you. And I'll tell you, there's only one person who always gets his prayers answered. I know I read a book a few years ago, by one of these big faith teachers who will remain nameless. And he said in this book that God has never ever not answered his prayer about anything. Let me tell you, that man is so self-deceived, he obviously can't even see reality when he trips over it. Can you see what I mean? It's absolutely incredible. There is only one man who gets every prayer answered. And he just happens to be our great high priest, and that's a great high priest's job, to get his prayers answered, and it's Jesus. <coughs> when you come into the faith of Jesus about something, 
then you're praying in utter harmony with Jesus and that will be answered. Can you see? It will become faith, it will become sight in God's time. Just go to Romans chapter 13, chapter 15. And this is the Take this verse away with you, all right, tonight. Really get this into you, because this sums up exactly what it's all about. Look what Paul says. He says, may the God of hope, hope, there it is again, God is the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now I'll tell you what Paul's saying there. He's saying you might not have faith for certain things at the moment. He says, but that's no problem because God's the God of hope. You haven't got it at the moment, but stay right with God and God will produce it in you. And he says, if you're hoping in the God of hope, if you've got hope, then even though there are all kinds of limitations on your Christian life, you are going to have joy and peace in believing. Why? Well, I'll say it again. Best example that I've done tonight, okay? A lot of people cannot work out how it can be that I am addicted to cigarettes and yet I have the joy and peace of Jesus in my life. I will tell you, because I have all joy and peace in believing, I know that God's going to set me free one day. When he does, isn't my problem. Can you see? Now that is what Paul is saying. Where you are unable to believe, be at peace about it, have hope about it, and Jesus will do everything that's needed in you in order to produce his faith in that area of your life. Faith isn't kidding yourself. Don't kid yourself that you've got faith you haven't got. Accept your limitations as a human being. I mean, we Christians should do this automatically, but we don't. We don't. We pretend. We're under a lot of pressure, charismatic pressure. We've got the Christian scene out there, pressurising us to conform. You know, we've got to wake up singing choruses. We've got to go to bed singing choruses. Somehow we're supposed to do our jobs during the day singing choruses. And you've got to smile all the time when there was a time when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweated drops of blood because he was so frightened and screwed up about something. This is the trouble, the charismatic movement hasn't left any room for reality. We've got to resist that pressure. Accept your limitations because that is the honesty whereby you are open for Jesus to produce his faith in you. So then, how are we going to get faith back for the gifts of the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you. Move out in what little faith you got. The faith you haven't got, don't worry about it. Have hope. Know that whereas you don't have the faith now, God is going to give you that faith. And the more at peace you are, the more you have true hope about it, that one day, even though not now, the more you rest in true biblical hope, the faster it will be that the faith of Jesus is produced in you. But if you get all screwed up and try, then the longer it will take. So it's this. What you are not experiencing yet that God has for you, don't worry about it. You are going to experience that if you stay in right relationship with him. And one of the ways you do that is to forget about all this faith mumbo-jumbo.
have hope in the way that the Bible says. Just that. Isn't it simple? Isn't it simple? You don't have to read through the top ten Christian paperbacks again. You don't have to keep referring to that last massive book and oh, well, what was it in chapter 13 that said something about... You don't have to do that. You have to look to Jesus and rest in the truth of his word. It is very, very simple. But I'll tell you this. If it wasn't as simple as this, what chance would any of us have? Can you see? In fact, if following Jesus wasn't as simple as this, oh, it's hard, I'm not saying it's easy, it's hard, but it's simple, there's a difference. If following Jesus wasn't simple, then quite simply none of us would be able to follow him at all. So there you have it, hope. That is a revelation that the Holy Spirit wants to put into your heart. Next time we move on and we start uh, two studies on the whole question about being part of the body of Christ and fellowship. Because remember, <coughs> Paul's teaching about the gifts of the Spirit, and we're finished with the gifts of the Spirit aspect now in this series, but Paul's teaching was in the context of fellowship and in the context of love. And so for the sake of balance, we will start moving on to that next time. Right, we'll finish there.